0: From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the Chesapeake Bay, Virginia is a mecca for outdoor travel and adventure. Virginia Outdoor Adventures podcast brings listeners stories and recommendations from leaders and influencers across the Virginia outdoor community. Get the information and the inspiration to plan your own adventure right here in Virginia. I'm your host, Jessica Bowser. Have you ever taken a stroll through a wildflower meadow with explosive colors, buzzing, and birdsong? Or have you ever hiked through the understory of a forest looking for wildlife or connecting with nature? You may have been enjoying the benefits of prescribed fire, a tool used to conserve and protect our landscapes. Sam Lopez, Wildlife Area Manager and member of the Burn Crew with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, explains how good fire is used to restore the wild. Sam answers your burning questions about the history, techniques, and results of good fire. And if you're looking for the best locations to spot wildlife and enjoy the great outdoors, Sam has recommendations for wildlife management areas across Virginia. Let's go. But first, in case you haven't heard the big news, Virginia Outdoor Adventures is honored to be a runner-up in the 2022 Best of the Blue Ridge Awards. Thanks to your support, not only are we recognized for being one of the best regional outdoor podcasts, But the added exposure is helping the show reach new listeners, which makes it possible for me to continue producing new episodes that highlight the best outdoor recreation opportunities right here in Virginia. Thank you for your support. Sam, welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures. Thank you for having me. I am really excited about today's topic of fire. So am I. Prescribed fire is something that is super cool to talk about, and it's a little bit different than some of the other episodes we've done. So that's why this episode is a special edition. Before we get into that, Sam, what do you love about Virginia's outdoors? I love the diversity.
1: I'm originally from Florida where everything is just hot, bugs, and flat. So to be in Virginia and have the beach on one end, and then I work out west in the mountains and just the diversity of the streams and the wildlife and the habitat. It's
0: just so cool that every day you can see something different in Virginia. So what is your role with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources and how did you become involved with the fire crew?
1: All right. So for DWR, I work on our wildlife management areas out West. So my partner and I work on about 66,000 acres of habitat and lands for the department of wildlife resources. And we basically install habitat. So that can be anything from doing uh, assisting with timber harvest to putting in wildlife meadows and pollinator meadows. We do a lot of prescribed burning out here, Um, We can actually thin forests, anything that has to do with bumblebees up to bears. We make sure that they've got a place to go, shelter, and can live out their days happily. Um, I got involved with FIRE a couple years back in about 2016-17. I got on with state parks, Virginia State Parks, uh, helping out with natural resources with them. And part of that job was dealing with invasive species, maintaining... Uh, about a hundred miles of trails in the area that I was in, and then also being involved in our prescribed fire program. And to do that, you had to be certified to actually be able to be on a fire. So you have to go through the training, the NWCG, which is the National Wildland coordination group, I believe if I'm not yes. mistaken. Thank you. <laughs>
0: I, I was like trying to also remember that from the training, but I get for not writing the
1: whole thing down and state <laughs> acronyms that are just fluid these days. Um, but I got onto fire and prescribed fire with state parks and they taught me a lot about what is its role in ecology and habitat and restoring land. So when I came over to DWR a couple years ago, something that was very important to me, Um, It is something that I'm very passionate about is prescribed fire and trying to restore a lot of our lands that were actually fire dependent at one time and evolved with fire. So it desperately needs it. And that's why I'm so
0: involved in it now. So we're calling this prescribed fire, but I've also heard it called good fire, but doesn't fire harm the landscape? Why are we calling it good fire? We hear that a lot. So we actually do call it good fire because prescribed fire is not
1: wildfire. Fire is not fire is not fire. It's all different. Fire can have a lot of different effects. So whereas you see the wildfires that are not controlled, they're going off in very bad conditions, very dry areas, uh, probably a lot of mountains, but you see out West, that is not what happens here in the East prescribed fire are very low intensities, we don't want them to get out of control either, and if we choose when we set those fires. Now, that means that we're not in drought, we're not having crazy winds, or anything unpredictable coming. And that good fire actually helps the landscape. A lot of the Appalachian areas where we are actually evolved with fire. Our entire ecosystems have to have fire. You have certain trees that can't even reproduce unless the fire breaks open their pine cones and spreads the seeds everywhere. Or oaks need it to help bring down all the competition or some of these invasive species that are there as well. So We have good fire because that's exactly what it is here in the East. We want something that is going to help rejuvenate our landscape. It's going to help all of those ecosystems that rely
0: on it and all of the habitats and the wildlife that need to have it as well. You just mentioned some of the effects that fire has on forests, but what about wildlife and other places like meadows? What effect does fire have there? Meadows is actually one of the most
1: common things that we burn because they have such a frequent fire interval. So, how frequently does fire come back to a meadow? How often does it occur? Which is usually on a one to three year rotation. It needs to burn, otherwise, you get a meadow that will now turn into a forest. Uh, succession is what it's called. So meadows in particular have to have that fire because you get what's called thatch or a buildup of all these old grasses and these forbs that just turn into this really thick mat. And if you don't get rid of that, whatever seeds are there and plants are trying to grow almost get like suppressed. So they can't get up and get through all of that heavy matted layer. But when you burn these things off, it clears off all of that mat. You have this beautiful soil and these roots and these plants that are just waiting to get that heat from the fire to clear off all the top. It warms up the soil because now the sunlight can come down to the soil later. And these seeds just burst open. They germinate. They're healthy again. It recycles a lot of that nutrients back into the soil. Um, And a lot of times for wildlife, if you think about in a forest, anybody out there who's gone hiking, I know a lot of your listeners are very active. You see these areas that are just thick of briars and underbrush. If you don't want to walk through it, wildlife probably doesn't either. So to have fire go through there and bring down some of that overgrowth and make little paths underneath that wildlife can scurry through, they do want some cover like turkeys. A lot of your birds need cover to walk under, but they don't want these super thick matted areas either. So opening that up a little bit, having new browse growing allowing that meadow to rejuvenate itself as well. Those are all fantastic things that we use fire for.
0: How do we know that good fire works? Do you have some examples of areas where good fire has transformed the landscape and positively impacted wildlife? Absolutely. And there are a lot of studies out there too proving this
1: point. Um, Even here in the Appalachians, the Fire Learning Network and Forest Service have actually been doing fire monitoring plots. So there are plots all throughout burn units that they've been doing studies with for, oh man, well over a decade, probably longer than that. That they've actually gone through and taken measurements of what plants are coming up, how many are there, what type of openings do you now have in your canopy, how much light is there, what trees are still dominant or not dominant in the canopy. So much data that they've actually shown that these fires are having great effects at making sure that we get that diversity that we really want and that our wildlife have to have. Now on our wildlife management areas, there are some really cool places that we have that you can see this diversity and where the landscape has really benefited from it. Out here in the West, we have two particular places that I love to go to. One is on Goshen Wildlife Management Area and it's called the Meadow Grounds. It's a little bit of a hike to get in there, but it is actually one of the few high elevation uh, meadows that we have, native meadows. It's about I think it's now almost 50 acres, 45, 50 acres. Every year we kind of expanded a little bit. And it has some of the best native pollinators and wildflowers and things that you'll ever see in there. And you see buck rubs and turkey running through there all the time. Uh, the other one that's really cool that's really come along in the last couple of years is over in Highland County, and it's off of Jack Mountain. So, the sounding knob, northernmost end of that WMA. We actually have several fields up there, the Jack Mountain Fields, which, as you're coming down in the WMA, you'll see them. They're beautiful. It's about uh, 25 acres now, a little over, that actually has beautiful, beautiful areas of wildflowers that have been encouraged to come in there. It's just some of the most colorful, noisy areas you've ever heard. If you're in the woods and it's noisy, Ah, that's a great thing. You've got tons of birds, tons of bugs. Everybody's happy.
0: That's funny that you say that because that's true. I was just talking to someone the other day who's been hiking the Appalachian Trail since he was a kid in the 1970s. And he told me that the bird song up there used to be so loud that you couldn't possibly sleep in in the morning because it would wake you. He said, now you don't hear that anymore. And, And we know that the bird population has drastically declined. So does prescribed fire help Uh, create the right habitat to attract birds and does it help birds? Yes, we actually are using
1: prescribed fire to help um, support our golden wing warbler habitat that we're trying to bring up and really progress over in Highland County on the Highland WMA. That field that we're burning that has some of the best pollinator habitat is actually for golden wing warbler but we're actually having such great response from the bugs because you think about the whole ecosystem so you have to have that first ecosystem for bugs if you've got bugs then you've got birds and if you've got birds you've got other things coming in so what you do that's usually good for one a lot of times actually has this huge umbrella effect And the more diversity you get with plants, the more that the bugs have to eat, more diversity of bugs, more diversity of insects, more diversity of that, the more diversity of birds and other wildlife will come in to actually be predators on those things. So if you start with the ground and what's best for the plants, usually ends up being the best for everybody else. And in the long run, I mean, you are taking into consideration there are some species like the golden ring warbler that have very specific needs. They want a specific structure. They want particular plants. Um, And some things, you know, like bears and turkey really don't care as much. So they're going to use it as well. So we use the good fire to actually affect everything, not
0: just one or two species. Want to help keep the wild places wild? The Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources invites you to join in its mission to ensure wildlife has healthy places to live and thrive by becoming a Restore the Wild member. Your membership will help support projects designed to restore and create wildlife habitat vital for their survival. Plus, you gain access to over 225,000 acres of public land across Virginia that are ideal for your next adventure. The outdoors are better together, so join us today at virginiawildlife.gov backslash restore or go to the show notes in your podcast listening app and click on Restore the Wild Membership. So I understand that prescribed fire is not a recent technique or a recent tool that has just started to be used, but in fact, it has gone back thousands and thousands of years to indigenous people using prescribed fire. So what is the history of prescribed fire and how does what we do today compare to back then? Yeah, it's hundreds and thousands of years that
1: fire has specifically been here in Virginia. Um, And we know that our valleys used to burn every two to seven years. And then our mountaintops would burn anywhere from five to maybe 20 years or less frequently on some of the higher peaks. Um, But we know that basically looking at some of our really, really old trees that we have that we've done the ring When you age a tree, you have your rings in it. You can also tell when fires went through there based on the charring and how big of a fire it was. And then you can see that next season. What was the regrowth after that? There usually are some spurts in there depending upon weather and other things that were going on. But we know that fire frequency here in Virginia, it's very well documented in our forests. And that also is what species are here to tell the tale. In addition, a lot of the First Nations that were here, yes, did use FIRE. Um, Even when we went out and tried to introduce FIRE with the FIRE Learning Network, it's a group of about six different agencies. We all work together to get FIRE on the ground at the landscape scale and do good work in a big scale together to really have an impact. We were actually finding out that you know, somebody's grandma who we thought was going to fight us necessarily on this was our biggest supporter. They were saying, Oh no, we used to burn all the time. I don't know why you guys aren't burning anymore. It was really good. So prescribed fire has always been here. It reduces a lot of your invasive species. It reduces a lot of your ticks, Everybody's a fan of that right now, I am certain. Uh (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, when we started to get more building, like you see out West, um, that normally would have a pretty frequent fire interval as well. But you have more building, you have more people. Now you have forestry. Now you have farming and fire for the human side of it can be very destructive. People were losing their livelihoods. They were losing their homes. And especially in some of these areas in Virginia, People were poor. They didn't have a lot of these resources to replace these things. So it was really important. The government felt, usually the feds, to have that fire suppression so that people weren't losing a lot of what was important to them. Unfortunately, we got so caught up in the suppression for about 80 years that we were losing whole generations of forest. I mean, our environment, just that ecology suffered really bad. Um, but now that we're bringing the fire back, we're seeing restoration of a lot of these really rare and unique habitats. And overall fire is not the only tool that we use. It's a great one, but it usually has to be combined with other things like timber harvest or, um, some sort of invasive species control. But we have learned based on science and also records and people telling us their tales as well, um, observations in the field that fire suppression really was a terrible thing. It's understandable why it happens. People don't want to lose uh, you know, their homes and their cattle grazing and their barns or whatever they have. Understandably, completely understand that. But for the ecosystem, it's not a good thing. Not at all.
0: Wow. This is really fascinating. You've done a really good job of giving us an overview of what Good Fire is all about. And some of my listeners have submitted questions that they would like to ask you about Good Fire. And I want to get to those and we will get to those. Um, But really quickly, I think for the people who generally tune into this podcast, who are looking for recommendations for outdoor recreation might be wondering why they should care about prescribed fire. So how does good fire impact people who enjoy the outdoors, especially here in Virginia? Number
1: one, if you like hiking through beautiful meadows that have lots of wildflowers, they're super loud with bumblebees. We want our pollinators to be able to come and be in our gardens. A lot of that prescribed fire is a great technique and a tool to make sure that you can still all enjoy those things. If they're getting taken over by invasive species, you're not going to have those beautiful landscapes to actually visually enjoy, to feel refreshed, to feel connected to the earth, which I know for a lot of us in the field who work there as well, along with your listeners, that's where you relax. That's where you feel rejuvenated and ready to take on the day. Number two, very practical, ticks. If you burn an area, ticks are usually down for at least a year, if not a little bit longer. So we thoroughly enjoy killing ticks. That's that's a good thing on our end. Um But another part of it is just really the impact that it has on all that other wildlife that you enjoy. If you're a nature watcher, you love to watch birds, or you really like to go out and see if you can find turkeys or bear or deer, any of those things that you like to do from hunting, even to fishing. We've actually seen that prescribed fires actually helps clean up waterways and make those better habitats as well. All of those things that you enjoy doing outdoors in this beautiful, pristine landscape, fire is a really great tool to keep it that way and to make sure that it's around for your kids and the next generation that they can still enjoy those things too. Cause we all know that some of those wild areas are becoming smaller and less and less.
0: That's really cool. I didn't know that prescribed fire can also impact fish populations. So. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. <laughs> That's really important for the people who fish. Um, I, one of my personal favorite places is Piney Grove, nature preserve yes. where, where good fire has been used to preserve the habitat that is needed for the red cockaded woodpecker, which yeah. for people who aren't familiar, what do we have? Eight species of woodpecker, I think in Virginia yep. and yep. red cockaded is the only species that can be found in this one area of Virginia only. You won't find it any place yep. else. And then it, and then it can be found farther south. Um, but it needs a very specific habitat mm-hmm. that we, we had lost over the years and through prescribed fire was brought back so that now people living in Virginia can have a place to go to see red cockaded woodpecker. Yep. And we're actually trying to a
1: lot of those areas can be very fragmented. So we're even looking at now and have had discussions about how do we expand those areas onto other WMAs that are close by. So maybe we can have the population will have the habitat to actually grow and increase which would be really great if we can give more habitat on the ground, but you're right. It's going to require fire. It's going to require a lot of work, but I think we're up for the challenge.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Shall we get into the listener questions? Yes. I'm so excited for these. these are a great me, question. Me too. So um, all of these questions were submitted either on um, the podcast, Instagram page, Facebook page, or they contacted me through email or on my website. But um, I selected a handful that I think represents the uh, the overall general questions that we got. So the first one is from someone named Joe, I believe. Um, and he asked, how does it catch spread and how does it get put out? That is a very large question Joe. All right so how does it catch? How does it
1: spread? How does it get put out? In prescribed fire we're usually doing a minimum of about a year planning ahead of time before we ever light anything on the ground and we choose when things light. So we're choosing the perfect humidity the perfect temperature for the day, the proper wind direction, making sure your smoke can actually get lifted up and thrown away and make sure it disperses that you're not going to get a lot of smoke on anybody who shouldn't have it. So how does it catch? Number one, a fuel. You have to have something on the ground that will burn. So dirt, soil doesn't burn. It's usually either going to be your grasses. They're very, very flashy fuels. They burn very fast. Or you can have something like timber litter. So, oak leaves are great as well. So, you need to have something to burn a fuel source. How does it spread? You have two main ways that you can naturally spread a fire or we help it ourselves. So spread, you're going to consider what type of fuel source do you have? How much fuel is it in these little pockets that it can't really go from one pocket to the next because there's just not a lot of fuel to spread it. It can't grow or does it have a um, wind that'll push it along? Does it have topography? So fire goes uphill a lot faster than it comes downhill. So we're considering those as well, but we spread it usually using either a drone, a drip torch, which is basically a canister with a little spout on the top of it that we carry by hand. And we do little drops of fuel so that we can actually carry it at whatever rate is appropriate. We don't want a super fast uh, fire necessarily. So we actually control how quickly this thing goes. And the last part of that was how do you put it out? Several ways. We make sure that we have essentially a big box around it. And we light it in such a way that number one, wildlife is never just like a ring around them and they get caught in the side. We only light usually one side at a time or even in a horseshoe. So you have a really big opening that all of your wildlife can go out. Pretty rare that you actually usually have much in there. They hear us moving around and they've already cleared the area probably a couple of days really before we get there, but it goes out. So we basically... Burn all of the outside. So it's essentially in a box and it's now only burning in the center of this box for a very simplified version. And how does it go out? It burns itself out. So we literally will stay on this fire. It's usually done burning within, you know, 12 hours, maybe 24. And we have people that stay on it and make sure this thing is staying in its box. Um, but a lot of times it burns its own fuel out. So it runs out of fuel and it goes out. It doesn't go anywhere. Or if we're really lucky, we try to plan where we know we have rain coming in 24 to 48 hours. So it burns what it cans and then it gets rained on and the thing is completely out. But if there is one little bit of smoke, we are literally on that fire every single day until it goes out or we will actually put water on it and put it out.
0: More from Sam in just a moment, but first, did you know that the chemicals typically found in household cleaning and personal care products can be harmful to people and our planet? That's why I decided to make the switch to natural products using the all-natural goat milk soaps and lotions handcrafted by the Freckle Farm Soap Company, a family-owned and operated small business right here in Virginia. I just tried their goat milk laundry soap after learning that the conventional detergent I've been using contains chemicals that can't be processed out by wastewater treatment plants, including carcinogens. The chemicals end up in our downstream waterways where high phosphate collections can result in algae blooms that harm aquatic life. Some detergent pods introduce plastic directly into our waterways. Goat Milk Laundry Soap is a hyper-concentrated, easily dissolved powder made with all natural ingredients, meaning the rinse water has a much lower impact on our water systems. These are products that I can feel good about because they're high quality and I'm supporting a small local business. As a Virginia Outdoor Adventures listener, you can receive a discount on your order of soaps, lotions, and other products by entering the promo code VAOA at checkout for 10% off. Shipping is free on orders over $35. Visit their website at freckledfarmsoapcompany.com or click the link in the show notes to take you directly to their site. Also check out the Virginia Outdoor Adventures Instagram and Facebook pages to see the video of my post-adventure cleanup using goat milk laundry soap. It cleaned all of my laundry from delicate flannels to my muddy work pants. Don't forget to enter VAOA at checkout for 10% off at the freckledfarmsoapcompany.com or click the link in the show notes. And now back to the show. When I participated in a prescribed fire as a volunteer the first time i was surprised how quickly it caught and went up really fast but also mm-hmm. like some of the larger trees they don't catch fire and i think that was something yeah. that confuses a lot of people these they were concerned that the whole forest is coming down and yes. that's not the case is it no a lot of times uh we've invited people out to our fires
1: especially if it's an understory so under trees timber fire and a lot of people are like this is boring. You have like six inch to one foot flames. It's super slow. We're like, yeah, it's a good day. Boring is a good day. Um, your grasses are a lot more flashy, big flames, but again, it's so fast that it can't actually just grab something else and start it on fire. And we light it in a very specific pattern to make sure that it's not going to blow up and turn into this huge thing. Prescribed fire. We are choosing what happens. We are under control. Um, We're not just starting something and let it go willy-nilly. It's (laughs) well planned out way in advance. Um, But on top of that is a lot of fire is all about resonance time. Resonance time is how long is your flame on the ground? A really fast resonance time probably won't even burn all the grass that's there. It just goes off. Just like when you strike a match and it just burns out versus some of our oak ones we want that long resonance time we want it to burn really slowly and really eat up a lot of that oak layer there so we have you know this beautiful duff or soil underneath it so that things can re-sprout.
0: Yeah. And there's a really wonderful video that you did with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources that listeners can watch if they want to see what it actually looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is on the DWR website. And I will drop a link in the show notes. So if you're listening to this right now, just go to the show notes section of your app and you'll be able to click on the link and watch a video of what this actually looks like. Let's go on to the next question. This question is from Aaron, Aaron with an A. And Aaron asked, why is the public opinion of fires so negative? Why aren't there more prescribed fires considering it's such a beneficial forest management tool? Um,
1: A big part of it, honestly, is what people see on the news. And a lot of it is those huge wildfires out west that we have seen over the years. They get bigger and bigger. They're more intense. Um, A lot of it is because there may not be enough prescribed burning ahead of time, which sometimes is, is a possibility and you can do those things. And sometimes it's not prescribed burning consumes all of those fuels that help build up into these huge fires. It actually prevents wildfires from happening. Um, But it's a lot of what people see and a lot of, because I think in the East, there is some areas where we do a lot of prescribed fires, but people just don't know. So if you've never seen you know, one of our low and slow fires and all you've seen is something out West, I understand why that is so intimidating. And you see people lose homes and you see people who are killed or are injured or lose everything that they have. That's terrifying. I understand completely um, why people would be very hesitant to have fire near them. But realizing that's not what we're doing here in the east, it is so humid here in the east, unlike out west, it's actually really hard to get something like that, um, nor is that what anybody is shooting for. So, and why aren't there more prescribed fires, there actually is a lot of prescribed fire happening Um, Forest service just last year, hit a record-breaking year of, I think, 34, 35,000 acres that they did out here in the Western Virginia, which is beautiful. Um, our lands need it so badly. I think part of it, though, is that we're trying to educate. We're trying to get those stories out there, but a lot of us are out in the woods, So I think we need to do a little bit more outreach, which is really what DWR is pushing right now. We're really trying to get out there and talk to people and teach them about FIRE and what it does and why we're doing it. That's a
0: really important thing, too, to understand why we're doing it in the first place. Great. This next question is from Linda and Linda says, I love the wildflowers that bloom in abundance in meadows after a burn. They are full of birds, bees, and other wildlife. Where can I find more of these wildflower meadows? Linda, we talked about this a little
1: bit ago, but I'm going to send you out to Highland. If you can get out to Highland County, Highland WMA, specifically you want to go to the Northern end, the sounding knob entrance, It's a little bit of a drive to get in, about three miles to get onto our property, but you will be on some of the most diverse and beautiful mountaintop fields. They are so loud. There's color everywhere. You've got this gorgeous view of all of the mountains around you on every side. Just beautiful. Go in like June and July. That's full peak season for those fields. It's a little bit of a hike to get in there. Oh, you're gonna love it! It's such a
0: beautiful, beautiful place to be. And I think some other sites that people might be more familiar with are like some of the state parks where prescribed yeah. burns have happened, and they're yep. usually really well marked too, so you know if yes. if a meadow has been burned. Or another example that usually jumps to people's minds right away is um, Shenandoah National Park. And yes, pe- big meadows up there. So those are some other examples as Perfect. well. Perfect. Perfect. Um, okay, so Thomas sends this next question, and Thomas asks, asks, why have we gotten away from prescribed burns? The tribes who took care of the land long ago before us did them almost yearly. Why have the benefits of the burns been ignored?
1: All right, so I think it's fear. I think it's that fear of the uncontrolled and the unknown. Actually, Thomas wrote a really great article that I think you would enjoy. It's called, Our Pappies Burned the Woods. One of our biologists just showed this to me. It basically was a psychologist who was employed by the federal government to go interview these people up in the mountain and trying to figure out why are these people burning so much. We're trying to put these fires out, and they've just got to be bored up there, and that's why they're burning. So maybe if we build like a, a community center to get them to talk to each other, they'll stop lighting the woods on fires because they're so bored. Turns out these families understood the importance of prescribed fire they understood that it kept the ticks down and improved the wildlife they were seeing more game species up there um and the tribes as well i mean our First Nations, they understood that if you burned a field every one to three years, your berries just took off the next year. They used it to clear lands. They used it to actually help go hunting. It would flush deer and other game species that they wanted to go catch. So it made their job a little bit easier. So they understood for a long time why it was so important. But unfortunately, I think whenever we started having more suppression, we have it starting um, more urbanization, we kind of got away from some of those lessons that we had from our family and from, I guess, previous generations that have been there. We kind of got away from that. So we forgot those things. But now that we're starting to do more science behind it, people are getting more introduction. We're starting to see those benefits, a picture is worth a thousand words, that I think those things are coming back to the forefront. I don't think there is lost as people think, I just think we need to get the message broader than where it is right now.
0: Well, I think that is a really good lead into the next question, which is from Brian. And Brian says, last year, I saw how prescribed fire at the state arboretum really transformed a meadow. And I'm wondering if it's a technique private citizens can use on their own land. Yes, you can. I am so excited about this. There are a couple different Things
1: that you can do. There are a couple different ways to actually get prescribed fire on your own land. You can do it. So, the first thing I would send you to is on the DWR website. There is an article, it's a 55 page um, manual, basically. It's fantastic, and it's Beyond the Bonfire is what it's called. And it'll actually go through and explain to you what fire is, how do you put it on the ground and give you that background to see if it's something that you really do want to take on. But if you do, the next thing I would tell you is the Virginia department of forestry has a certified burn manager course, and they actually teach you how to write a burn plan. So you know exactly what your plan is to burn that you can, um, know how to do all those things and get the Department of Forestry to help you so that you actually can put fire on your own land. Because once you do it a couple of times, it's not as scary as a thing you think it is, but it is very intimidating to start. And I understand that. Um, But another thing that you can actually do is have the Department of Forestry do the fire on your land for you. Uh, Last I checked, it was about $30 an acre. If you want them to burn it, they can write a burn plan for you. They can also do prep on your land. So they'll actually put in the lines to make sure, you know, our fire stays in the box. That's a little bit of an extra cost, but you know, if it's something that you're not sure you're confident enough to do yourself, there is absolutely resources and help out
0: there for you. Absolutely. That's really good to know. $30 an acre is a pretty good price for the you know, amount Right. Of- for the amount of work and all the tools and the equipment that, it, that can be needed yeah. to do something like that. That's uh, a that's good deal. <laughs> um, and that also is a really good lead into Melissa's question, which is how does someone become certified to participate on a burn crew? Okay. So two
1: different things here. Are you thinking about a burn crew as your professional career? Or do you just want to have that knowledge? Maybe you want to volunteer for wildfires or help there. So I'm going to give you some options for both of those. So if this is something you want to do for a career, like I do or any other burn managers, um, a really great first step is actually, uh, we had a lot of people in state parks who went through the AmeriCorps program. Uh, The Virginia State Parks AmeriCorps program actually has in their natural resource section, they put you through fire training. So they go through the NWCG guidelines and get you certified to do all of these things. It's basically five, sorry, now I think it's seven, online courses. Takes about 40 hours to get through all of the online work. And then you do what's called a pack test, which is either a 25-pound vest uh, that will take you 30 minutes to complete two miles, or you wear a 45 pound vest, the arduous, That is three miles completed in 40 minutes. And I think you just did your pack test the other day. So congratulations.
0: (laughs) That is awesome. Thank you. I did. I did it the day before yesterday. It was a recertification. So it's the second time that I've done it. And I'm here to tell you, it's not a walk in the park. (laughs) It was was really difficult. I mean, 40 hours of online coursework. And then, of course, you have to take an exam at the end of that. That's, um, That's a commitment right there. So you have to think about if you have the time. Time to do it, and right. then you when you hear uh, the pack test requirements, twenty five pounds for two miles doesn't seem like a lot, especially because I'm somebody who hikes a lot. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm normally wearing a pack, so this will just be like a fast hike. No, no. <laughs> it's much more no, difficult. Not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you can't just have anybody on a line. I mean, That's you really right. do
1: need to be in peak physical shape. If something happens, you have to know that you can take care of yourself and all of your teammates around you. That every Everybody is safe. That at the end of the day, first priority, firefighter safety, period. No Mm -hmm. ifs, ands, or buts. If there's any doubt, we're not doing it. Um, So that's number one, I would say, is AmeriCorps. If you have a lot of time, you can put that commitment into the program. 100% worth it if you think this is a career. Other opportunity, which is really awesome, is to go through those NWCG courses. Um, We can provide those later but also go on part-time with Department of Forestry. They're usually looking for some good uh, part-time firefighters as well. Quite a few of our guys that work for the agency also work for them part-time if there's a wildfire that comes off off hours or something like that. So we like to help out on that as well if anybody else needs help. So those would be my two things that I would say. If that's something you really want to do and you want to be on a burn crew, go for it. It's an awesome opportunity. You'll learn a lot.
0: Yeah. And I'll just add that I did it as a volunteer. So I'm not a member um, and I'm not looking to do this for as a career choice, but um, you can do it as a volunteer. So if it's Mm -hmm. something that you think that you would enjoy doing, then there is that option as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is going to be all for our listener questions, Sam. I'd love to have you talk all day long, but, (laughs) and and we probably could talk all day long, um, but we do have to wrap it up at some point. So um, I guess the next question is how can listeners be part of the effort to protect these areas? Best way to do that
1: is with a restore the wild membership. So your membership, and there are three different types of memberships that you could get but that Restore the Wild membership can get you onto WMAs for a whole year but with that is those Restore the Wild funds actually go right back to habitat work for example on Short Hills Wildlife Management Area is one of mine I just had a project sponsored and will pay for 4 acres of edge habitat. So like where a field meets a forest, sometimes there's a really hard edge and we need it to be a little thinner. We need a lot of um, forbs and other plants to grow in that area so that your turkeys and your other things can hide as they're coming from the forest to use those beautiful fields that we've burned. So your funds actually have already paid for four acres of habitat and hopefully another six acres last or for the 23 season that we're going for. And it's also done pollinator fields and habitats for highly endangered bumblebees. So that really, really directly comes back to those habitats that mean so much to all of us.
0: So as part of that Restore the Wild membership, you mentioned that it gets you onto the WMAs. Do you want to just quickly explain what WMAs are in case people aren't familiar with them? Sorry,
1: too much vernacular. A WMA is a wildlife management area. These are the Department of Wildlife Resources state-owned lands. These are public lands. Anybody can come on these lands. You can enjoy, do wildlife watching. You can hike around everywhere. Of course, we do have hunters. We do have fishermen and women as well. Um, We love to have all of those sites here and all of those different users come onto these lands, but you do have to make sure that you do either have a hunting or fishing license, a boating license, um, you do need to have a wildlife management area permit so you can have one of those as well, or you can do this restore the wild membership and that comes with it as well. So it's kind of a double whammy where you get to go on, I believe we have over 200,000 acres now in the state of Virginia and you get to directly help on the ground, put in much needed habitat. So it's a win-win for everybody.
0: Yeah, um, WMAs are something that I've talked about on the show before. Um, So first of all, if you're looking for a wildlife management area, you can go to DWR's website and there is a map and it shows you where they're located all over the state. And then you can click on each individual one to get information about it. Mm -hmm. Also, um, DWR has a really great app and you can download the app onto your phone and it will give you um, all the information that you're looking for about a WMA right there on your phone, which is super convenient. I love that as well. so easy to use too. It's so easy. It's very intuitive. It's great. And WMAs are so I had been to a few of them before the pandemic started, but when the pandemic hit, that's when I really discovered them. Yes. <laughs> um and that's yes. that's because like the national parks were closed and local parks were closed, state parks were open, but they were just flooded with visitors. And if you were looking for a place to be away from a lot of people, um, I had, you know, for me personally, I was starting to explore other areas. And I, like I said, I had been to a few uh, WMAs and then I went online and looked at where the rest of them were. And I thought, Hmm, this looks like a bucket list item that I can add (laughs) as something to do to visit all the WMAs in the States. That has been my latest project, but I've been so impressed with what I have found. It's just, it's so, beautiful. Um, you know, Virginia in general, and I think the wildlife management areas because they're located all over the state, just showcase yes. the beauty of Virginia. Yep. And
1: they're usually pretty easy to go to. Um, They're very scenic most of the time, which is awesome. They're really quiet. Um, Even for so many people that are on them, they're super quiet. They're super peaceful. If you run into any of us staff that work there, we would love to answer a million questions. That's what they're for. We love to have that experience with you guys and answer any questions you have. So if you ever see one of the DWR trucks, Don't feel bad. Ask us questions if you're wondering anything, tips on where to go, what wildlife is going on, where your acorn harvests are, any of those things. We love, love, love to see you guys out on the lands.
0: Yeah. And I think I will just, one last thing we'll point out that they are not parks.
1: And there's a very big difference. So (laughs) do
0: not show up there thinking that there's going to be a bunch of amenities like you would see in a park. There's not going to be a visitor center. There's not going to be restrooms. There's not going to be food or water or any of that. It is just you and the land. I would recommend definitely have your GPS map
1: already loaded on your phone. Especially if you come out West, you're probably not going to have great cell phone areas which is great. It's so relaxing, but you don't want to feel overwhelmed or lost on a property either. So bring your water, bring your first aid kit, bring your phone, bring a map. If you can download that ahead of time. So you feel really comfortable, but you're right. It is not a state park. It is a wilderness area, which is really, really fun.
0: Mm -hmm. And wear your blaze orange if it's hunting season. Yes, please (laughs) make yourself obvious. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being a guest on Virginia outdoor adventures. This was fascinating to learn all about good fire and how it's being used. And for the listeners who want to learn more, definitely check your show notes. There's going to be lots of links there with information. Um, and also go to the podcast, social media pages, because I will be posting lots of photos and videos about prescribed fire, um, for the next couple of weeks and, and beyond. So, you can actually see what it looks like, see what some of the training looks like. Like you mentioned, I just completed training myself. So, I'll be posting about that. And um, hopefully, some people will be interested in, in either volunteering or participating or doing this on their own land. But in the meantime, Sam, if somebody has a question that they didn't um, hear an answer to today, how can they get a hold of you or where can they find answers to their questions?
1: Absolutely. So first and foremost, the best, best reference that we have is that DWR website. We have so much information on there and resources and places that you can go. Um, So go there first because you'll probably find your answer in some really cool articles or pictures to go along with it. So you can see what it is that we're talking about. But if you have any questions, you're welcome to email or call any one of our regional offices. We're always there. And they will directly send your question to one of the wildlife management area staff members who can physically call you and give you an answer to whatever your question is. If you want to email me directly, it is samantha.lopez
0: at dwr.virginia.gov. Perfect. Sam, thank you for being a guest on Virginia Outdoor Adventures. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. This was really fun. Adventure on. Did you know that you can become a member of Virginia Outdoor Adventures? For the same price as a cup of coffee every month, you can receive a Virginia Outdoor Adventures membership while supporting the show. Members have access to the complete list of links and resources from each episode. Members also receive Virginia Outdoor Adventures vinyl stickers and a shout out on the show. I'd like to thank my newest membership supporters, Holly Hazard, Amanda Creasy, Todd Olson, Kevin Hickerson, and Nancy Heltman. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting me. Visit buymeacoffee.com backslash Jessica Bowser, where you can buy me a virtual coffee or sign up for a membership. You can also support me by subscribing to the show on your listening app. Help spread the word by sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media. Last but not least, leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I love hearing from my listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Virginia Outdoor Adventures or on the website at virginiaoutdooradventures.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adventure on.